Imagine a scenario where you're in the mood for a true crime podcast. You take out your headphones and press play on the first recommendation. You're excited to delve into an eerie and chilling case. Is someone missing? Is there a conspiracy about to be uncovered? As you listen to the beginning, you're met with a startling surprise. The podcast sucks. And now imagine that you're listening to a different podcast, one that exceeds your expectations. The storytelling is well done. The details are thoroughly researched. The music is chilling and unsettling. And then there's the best part. You get to listen to my deep and creepy voice. When you listen to Still Unsolved, you get to join us as we bring the true crime genre back to its roots. Every week, we highlight different cases of missing persons, wanted felons, unsolved murders, and the truly bizarre occurrences of life. Subscribe to Still Unsolved wherever you like to listen to your podcasts and join us. With your help, some of these cases may no longer be an unsolved mystery. You're listening to True Crime Feed. Welcome to True Crime Feed. I'm your host, Angela Ferrari, reviewing the best true crime podcast from the past decade with a teensy bit of humor, plus my top three true crime picks of the week. Up first on the docket, here's a show from the archives I think you will really enjoy. Let's discuss the case for Witnessed Season 2, Friendly Fire. Here's a rundown from the show page. When a canine officer in the Scott County, Tennessee Sheriff's Department winds up shot at the hands of his partner, a grieving widow takes it upon herself to untangle the truth from the lies. Was it just a catastrophic accident or an intentional killing? As per usual, if you want to take your listening experience to the next level, go to the truecrimefeed.com and sign up for my newsletter where I curate visual aids to accompany the show. This week, I put together a little law enforcement family tree to help you keep track of who's who in the Scott County Sheriff's Department because half the folks seem to be related. The podcast Witnessed is currently on their season five, and I'll let you know my thoughts about the latest season later on in the show. Season 2, Friendly Fire, is the crown jewel of this podcast. The story and the reporting are outstanding, but to me, what makes it so special is that it has some of the most candid audio interviews I've ever heard in a series. You know exactly where everyone stands in this story. I highly recommend tuning in to the entire eight-episode series. It's definitely worth your time. But for now, I'll give you a quick overview of the goings-on in Scott County, Tennessee. Located about an hour northwest of Knoxville on the Kentucky border, notable towns are Huntsville and Oneida. The entire county has just over 20,000 residents. Everybody knows everybody in Scott County, Tennessee. Or maybe we should call it Carson County, because that's the big name in law enforcement around these parts. Starting with Marion Carson, who honestly could have a whole podcast series just dedicated to him. He was sheriff for 10 years, starting in 1976. 
and sheriffs had the power to appoint deputies, and Marion gave a badge to his brother, Jim Carson. Sheriff Marion was in power until he was indicted in 1986 on federal drug charges and sentenced to 15 years. Because Marion had a nasty little habit of assuring safe passage for Colombian cocaine through his jurisdiction. He was caught on videotape accepting a payout from an undercover agent. The theory was Marion could have gotten a much lesser sentence if he implicated the bigger kingpins he was involved with, like Don Walker and Pablo Escobar. Rumor had it that Marion Carson took the fall after he received advice outside of his counsel in the form of threats against his family and his hog barn being set on fire. So Marion Carson was out of the game serving in a federal prison, but soon a new Carson stepped in to fill his sheriff's shoes, Brother Jim. Jim Carson was Scott County's longest-running sheriff from 1994 to 2006. During his tenure he appointed several family members to various positions in his department, including his son, Marty Carson. Marty was appointed to the role of drug cop. Besides his daddy being the sheriff, he had a lot of job security. Because in the early 2000s in backwoods, North Tennessee, Scott County, the meth trade was a booming business. Picture the Andy Griffith show meets Breaking Bad. Marty Carson was paired up with a canine officer named John John Yancey. Unlike Marty, John John spent years trying to earn his position as a police officer. John John married his high school sweetheart, Lori, and first worked as a coal washer and became a volunteer deputy just after Lori gave birth to their first of three sons. So John John worked as an unpaid deputy volunteer during nights and weekends, helping to fill in the gaps to support law enforcement. After a few years, John John parlayed his volunteer role into a paid full-time position. He attended the police academy and within five years became a sergeant in the canine unit, where he was partnered with drug cop Marty Carson. Marty and John John each had their own confidential informants, playing this game of whack-a-mole with pop-up meth labs. Unlike other drugs, meth can be manufactured with everyday household products, such as brake fluid, acetone, cold medicine, and coffee filters. Like a demented Mr. Wizard science experiment. Side note, you guys, do you remember Mr. Wizard? He had that science show for kids during the 80s, which would never air today. It consisted of him lighting various chemicals on fire and berating children. Don't get me wrong, it was totally awesome. Mr. Wizard's, quote, lab was in his kitchen. It was always a little messy. And like three kids would share one pair of goggles, sometimes at the same time. So if you need a fun palate cleanser after you complete this case, you can watch compilation videos with titles like Mr. Wizard being a dick to kids. They are twisted, but you can still learn something. But before you go off gallivanting over to Mr. Wizard's lab, we've got to visit a meth lab first. John John and Marty got a tip about a meth lab in the nearby town of Oneida. Word was a well-known dealer was actively cooking there in a double wide after a tip came in that this dude was buying supplies in bulk from a local retailer. So on Thanksgiving weekend in 2003, Marty Carson and John John Yancey went to the home of a man named Ryan Clark to do a routine knock and talk. This is a common technique cops will use if they have suspicion of illegal activity, but they don't have a warrant. 
Marty and John John roll up to the trailer. There's also two deputies posted on the perimeter just in case they need backup. The homeowner named Ryan happens to be out in the yard while Marty knocks on the door, and a house guest named Nicole lets him inside. Once he enters, he asks Nicole if she's alone. She says yes, but it's pretty clear that there are two other people inside the bedroom with the door closed, Mark and Penny. Officer Marty Carson orders the suspects out of the bedroom, but they refuse. Suspect Mark is threatening to shoot his accomplice Penny if the officer doesn't leave. Things get murky from here. At one point, Officer Marty ducks into the bathroom and closes the door. While Officer John John enters the residence, a gun goes off. John John says, I've been hit. Marty comes out of the bathroom. Nicole comes out from around the corner. John John was hit in his chest, just above his bulletproof vest, and he's slumping down towards the floor. Marty drags his fellow officer over to the living room to lay him out flat. He orders Nicole to get help and holler out for the backup officer, Donnie, who's posted outside. Officer Donnie hears Nicole crying for help and races up to the deck. Marty goes outside to meet him. So the two officers are outside for a good 10 to 15 minutes while Nicole is alone with John John as he lay dying on the living room floor. Nicole held John John's hand. She knew who he was. Like I said, everyone knows everyone in Scott County. The few times she had been pulled over by John John, she remembered he was kind and fair. He had the reputation of being respectful, even if you were breaking the law. Nicole begged John John not to die. She screamed for help. Each minute felt like an hour going by, but still nobody came. Eventually, Penny and Mark, who were still in the bedroom, carefully opened the door, tiptoed out of the room, walked over John John's body, and snuck out of the house, somehow undetected by the other officers who were outside. Penny and Mark raced into the woods and hid out. Nicole was still waiting by herself, holding John John's hand, when finally, a rookie officer named Jeremy Cross was patrolling in the area. He hears Marty on the scanner shouting, Officer down. So Jeremy races over to the location. He sees Marty outside and hears Nicole hysterically crying for help. Marty asks Officer Jeremy to go inside with him and help him clear the trailer. Uh, I'm sorry, does that not sound terrifying? You're a rookie cop and a fellow officer has just been shot by who you believe to be some crazed man yielding a shotgun high on meth and you've been instructed to go inside and clear the trailer? But when Officer Jeremy enters, he's surprised to discover it's just Nicole and John John inside. It's also clear that no way was this small bullet wound to the chest made with a shotgun. Rookie officer Jeremy tried to perform CPR, but it was no use. Paramedics finally arrive on the scene. At this point, John John's skin is gray and getting cold to the touch. He's lost way too much blood to resuscitate him, and it was clear. John John Yancey was dead. Meanwhile, his wife, Lori Yancey, had the night off from work from her job as a nurse in the Scott County ER. Lori was listening in on the scanner. 
It could be a little unsettling for her when her husband John John was out late at night on patrol, so she was always comforted when she heard his voice on the scanner. But on this night, Lori heard the code for Officer Down. She called the hospital, and a nurse co-worker told her, you need to get here right away. From then on, things are a blur. One moment, Lori is picking out a Christmas tree with her three boys, ages three, five, and seven. The next moment, she's driving to the hospital because her husband has been fatally shot in the line of duty. While Lori is racing over to the hospital, Nicole was still in the trailer waiting to be questioned. The others who had been there that night, Ryan, Mark, and Penny, had fled, and there was a search going on. Officer Marty was outside in a patrol car with his daddy, Sheriff Jim Carson. So it was just rookie officer Jeremy who was alone inside with Nicole. At one point, Nicole asked him if she could use the bathroom. Jeremy allowed her to go. And when inside the bathroom, Nicole noticed a 357 Glock handgun had been placed behind the toilet, propped up, leaning against the wall. More officers were racing to the scene. Residents watched the cars zoom by their house and turned on their scanners. Word quickly got out that an officer had been shot and killed. Now everyone in Scott County wanted answers. Who did this? As the other officers gathered on the scene, they were instructed to be on the lookout for a man named Mark New. So who is Mark New, and what does he have to do with John John's killing? As it turns out, absolutely nothing. That's right, Mark New has nothing to do with this story. He is as relevant to this case as your aunt's weird coleslaw at Thanksgiving dinner. I mean, seriously, Aunt Louise, who still uses Miracle Whip? Get with the program! Anyway, there was a man named Mark at the trailer that night, but his last name was Rector, not New. Mark New had no criminal record whatsoever. He owned a furniture store and sold used cars on the side. Mark New was home with his wife all night. He did live a few miles away from the trailer and turn on the police scanner after he saw three or four cruisers speed by his house. That's when he heard his name over the radio in connection with a killing of a cop. He learned there were search dogs out looking for him and heard instructions that Mark New was last seen at Ryan Clark's trailer and was possibly armed with a shotgun. Can you even imagine being in this situation? Like I said, Mark New was home all night. Now he and his wife are hearing this, they are absolutely terrified and didn't know what to do. Friends and family had their phone ringing off the hook. What is going on? Why are cops saying Mark shot a cop? Mark New braced himself for a barrage of police officers to come pound on his door. But hours went by, and no cop ever came. He managed to get a few hours of sleep that night, and the next morning, he turned on the scanner. His name was still being called over the radio to be on the lookout. Finally, his wife had enough and called the Scott County Sheriff's Office. She told them she was home with her husband all night, and there must have been some misunderstanding. The dispatch took in the info. A few minutes later, Mark's wife got a call back from a different deputy saying they were actually not looking for a man named Mark New. 
What the cuss, right? To this day, no one from the Scott County Sheriff's Office has an explanation for this mix-up as to why Mark New was initially named as a suspect. It's as though his name was randomly pulled out of thin air. Some folks out there, though, they believe this was a deliberate diversion. The next morning, Lori Yancey was visited by two Scott County deputies. As if she wasn't overwhelmed enough, they broke the devastating news to her that John John had been shot by his partner, Marty. They told her the whole thing was a tragic accident. Her gut reaction was to feel terrible for Marty. The Yancey family holds a service for John John three days later. Neither Marty Carson or his father, Sheriff Jim Carson, spoke to Lori, which she found kind of odd. Also, when Marty showed up to the funeral, it seemed pretty evident that he was intoxicated. It was a packed house of mourners. Law enforcement from all over the state came to pay their respect. Many of them were overcome with emotion. But Lori noticed Marty was not crying. The day after the funeral, the DA from Scott County held a press conference to set the record straight after there had been so much initial confusion. He announced that the whole incident had been a tragic accident. The three people who had fled the trailer that night, Mark Rector, Ryan Clark, and Penny Carpenter, had been found in the woods the morning after the shooting and apprehended, but no murder charges were filed against them, and none of them had been in possession of a shotgun. In fact, the only firearms on the premise that night had all belonged to law enforcement. It was simply a case of friendly fire. Marty had been cleared in the shooting of John John Yancey. Less than a week after the killing, as far as Scott County was concerned, this case was closed. But the case was just beginning for Lori. This was all news to her. The fact that there was no shotgun, that it was a man named Mark Rector and not Mark New, had been present but unarmed the whole time. And the only shots fired came from Marty, but the whole thing was an accident? How could this be? Lori decides then and there she can't trust the word of the Scott County Sheriff's Department. Instead, she begins her own investigation. We'll get to her findings in just a moment. But first, let's hear Marty's explanation. The Tennessee Bureau of Investigation conducted a formal interview with Marty two months after the shooting. Marty claims the whole thing had been John John's idea to go to the trailer that night and get overtime pay. But it was Marty who decided to take the lead on the knock and talk. When Nicole let him enter the house, Marty said he could tell two other people were in the home inside the bedroom. Even though the bedroom door was shut, he could see them through the gaps in the doorway that were illuminated by police car headlights shining through the bedroom window. Marty claims he told the suspects to come out of the bedroom, and that's when Mark Rector allegedly threatened to shoot Penny Carpenter if Officer Marty didn't leave. Then Marty saw what he thought was the barrel of a shotgun through the door gap, so he shouted to John John outside saying, don't come in, and bolted into the bathroom across the hall and shut the door. 
Even though he admits that the hallway light was on, Marty claimed that the bathroom was completely pitch black, and Marty thought he heard the suspect approaching outside the door, loading a shotgun. So Marty fired his gun through the door. To his shock, John John had ignored his orders to stay outside, and instead had been the person he heard on the other side of the door, the person he fired upon. Marty swears it was an accident. So yeah, that's his official story. But even the TBI was a little sus. The interviewing agent responded to Marty's story saying, quote, A lot of people are going to read this and conclude that you are not being completely truthful about what happened. End quote. Meanwhile, the newly widowed Lori Yancey was conducting her own investigation. I was pretty surprised when I heard that Ryan Clark, the person who owned the trailer, allowed Lori to come inside and look around. She was immediately shocked at how small the whole place was. She pictured a long hallway based on Marty's description. But now, seeing it firsthand, it was clear that this would have been very hard to mix up who was coming from where. Even if it was pitch black in the bathroom, it would have been obvious if the bedroom door had opened versus if someone had come in from the outside door. Lori felt it deep in her bones that Marty was not telling the truth. Then she spoke to Nicole Windle, the woman who was present during the shooting and held John John's hand as he lay dying. Let's just say Nicole's account is a little different than Officer Marty's. She remembers being asleep but sober the night that Officer Marty knocked on the door. She was startled and wasn't sure what to do in this situation. She doesn't grant him permission to come inside, but she doesn't tell him no either. So Marty lets himself in and orders the other two suspects to open the bedroom door and come out. Nicole does remember Mark threatening to kill Penny. She knew he was bluffing, but she was still afraid of confrontation. So Nicole ducked behind the wall of the kitchen out of sight for a moment. But she remembers clearly hearing Officer Marty calling for John John to come inside. Nicole said she heard footsteps, shuffling, but no words were spoken. Then she heard the gun go off and Marty asking John John, are you okay? And John John replying, no, I've been shot. Nicole peeks around the corner and sees John John bleeding and slumping down the wall. She remembers seeing Marty putting his gun back in his holster. Kind of odd if you know the suspects who you believed were armed and dangerous. They're still just on the other side of the bedroom door. From there, we know the rest. She called for Officer Donnie. Marty went out to meet him. So she was alone with John John 10 to 15 minutes waiting for help. Penny and Mark snuck out. Rookie Officer Jeremy showed up to the scene, followed by the ambulance. Officer Jeremy and Nicole were waiting in the trailer together when she goes into the bathroom and discovered the handgun propped behind the toilet. We know that part. But what I didn't tell you was that the handgun left behind in the bathroom belonged to John John Yancey. What the flying fork, right? Now Lori feels certain that this was no accident and wants Marty and the Scott County Sheriff's Department held accountable for her husband's murder. But that's not going to be easy. The district attorney already made their assessment that this was an accident, 
So they're not going to go into battle with Lori and take the case to criminal court. Lori will need to take the case instead to civil court and hope enough new information emerges for the DA to change their mind and make this a criminal case. First, Lori needs a lawyer. She hires a local, and he's pretty nervous from the jump. I think he went and visited the trailer with her, but got spooked and decided he didn't want to touch this one. Kind of like Aunt Louise's signature Thanksgiving coleslaw. Oh, good God, she put raisins in it this year. I'd rather eat my own organs. Take the hint, Louise. Anyway, after her first lawyer doesn't pan out, Lori teams up with notorious Tennessee attorney Herb Monsieur. It is now the winter of 2004, and they have every reason to believe that this was an intentional shooting. But what they don't have is a clear motive at this point. Lori knew that John John had been complaining about Marty lately and no longer wanted to work with him. John John had even been in contact with the Oneida Police Department asking for a job. Lori figured tensions were high between Marty and John John, perhaps because John John wanted to run for sheriff of Scott County against Marty's father, Jim Carson. That could definitely explain some friction, but is that really a motive for murder? It's all they have for now. Lori and Herb begin the court proceedings and prepare themselves for trial. It seems like everyone in town is gossiping about the case and sharing their opinions. Meanwhile, Marty gets a promotion to chief deputy. Thanks, Dad. Lori does her best to go about life in her small town as normal as she can. But honestly, how normal can life really be when you're suing the sheriff's son and accusing the entire department of a cover-up? Then one day, Lori is working a nursing shift at the ER when a patient comes in named Rick Babb. Rick is in rough shape. He's a self-proclaimed outlaw. Nothing super violent, just lots of years of drug use. Like everyone in town, he knew all about the case and recognized Lori Yancey right away. It had now been three years since her husband John John had been shot. But Rick felt overcome with emotion. As he's about to be discharged, Rick Babb leans over to Lori Yancey and whispers, You've got this all wrong. Your husband was killed over drugs. That's when Rick tells his side of the story. Rick Babb had been a longtime informant for Marty Carson, and he claims Marty was a corrupt cop, taking kickbacks from meth cookers and looking the other way. Kind of runs in the Carson family. Rick Babb also alleged that Marty Carson dabbled in drugs himself, About a month before John John was killed, Rick claimed he bought some meth for Marty, and when the officer rolled up with his partner John John next to him in the patrol car, Rick figured John John was corrupt just like Marty and tossed him the bag of meth, saying something like, Have fun with that one, boys. John John looked appalled. Rick knew immediately he messed up bad. Three weeks later, he met Marty in a cemetery, and according to Rick Babb, Marty Carson offered him 10 grand to kill his partner, John John Yancey. Rick refused, but a week later, John John was dead. So that's Rick's side of the story. Fast forward to the civil trial, you have Marty Carson and the other members of the Scott County Law Enforcement telling their side. 
And then the rough, seedy underbelly of Scott County telling the other side. After five days of testimony, the jury deliberates. The burden of proof is much lower in a civil case based on the preponderance of evidence versus beyond a reasonable doubt. But still, this is a really tough case. The jurors deliberate only a few hours, then they come back with their verdict. They agreed with Lori that yes, Marty Carson, quote, intentionally or maliciously shot John John Yancey. They awarded her $5 million in damages. She'd never actually see that money, though. I mean, how could Marty ever pay her that absorbent amount of money on just a cop salary? Unless he had a side hustle of some kind. Even though Marty Carson was found to be at fault in the civil trial, he was never brought up on criminal charges. But the people of Scott County were ready for a new sheriff. They voted Marty's dad, Jim Carson, out of office in 2006. And they also renamed the Scott County Park in the town of Huntsville to the John John Yancey Memorial Park with a welcome sign featuring a photo of John John showing off his dimpled smile. Marty Carson died in 2021 and Lori Yancey is happily remarried. Also, guess what, you guys? My weird Aunt Louise is somehow now dating Mr. Wizard, and the two are enjoying spending time experimenting together in the kitchen. I'm very happy for them, but I'm also dreading what kind of abominable coleslaw they're going to be bringing over to Thanksgiving dinner. Yeah, dude, that was Witness Season 2 Friendly Fire, and there's so much more to this case. Like I said, it's absolutely worth hearing the folks involved share the story in their own words. Maybe you're going to be like me and shouting back at a particular interview, a member of the Scott County law enforcement denying the credibility of a person because they use drugs. The same agency that uses these same folks as informants when they need help making their cases. It's as rage-inducing as watching Aunt Louise roll up with a full Tupperware in hand. Dear God, no! This one seemed to bring out a lot of feelings in me today. How about you? Tell me all your thoughts about today's episode. You can email me directly at Angela at thetruecrimefeed.com or join the True Crime Feed Facebook discussion group. Keep an open mind and be kind to fellow true crime feed friends. Stay tuned till after the break to hear my top three podcast power ranking of the week. Ah, <sighs> Hey you, I'm so glad we found each other and get to share our special love for true crime podcasts. I don't ever want you to miss out on a wild story. That would be a crime in itself. So be sure to hit that follow or subscribe button on your podcast app and share your favorite episode with a friend so the next time you see each other, you can splurge about your latest true crime obsession. Thanks for spreading the word. And now back to the show. And we're back. You guys, you guys, you guys, I am so excited. This was like the best week ever in podcast land. I don't even have a miss this week. If anything, I can't narrow down a top three. So instead, allow me to present five shows currently trending that I think are worth a listen. I present to you this week's podcast power ranking. Five, four, three, two, one. At the number five spot, we have The Wedding Scammer. 
Here's a rundown from the show page. Have you ever been scammed? In The Ringer's first true crime podcast, host Justin Sales tracks a mysterious figure who once wronged him. A man with a lot of aliases, a lot of failed businesses, and a trail of victims. Justin follows him through a sham media company, a series of ruined weddings, and beyond, trying to find answers. The police can't offer any help, but maybe he can. Currently on episode four, this was a fun little road trip origin story episode. They visit the scammer's childhood home in Pennsylvania and hear directly from his father. It's a good fact-finding mission to further the story along. Nice to catch our breath a little bit because we know we're in for some wild shenanigans based on the coming up on teasers. So don't miss The Wedding Scammer. At the number four spot, we have witnessed season five fade to black. Here's a rundown from the show page. When L.A. screenwriter Gary DeVore mysteriously disappears in the summer of 1997, weird coincidences lead family and friends to believe he may have been a victim of foul play, possibly because of his mysterious ties to the CIA. Gary was on the way home from finishing his latest script, which was allegedly going to be based in part on real events that occurred during the American invasion of Panama. And that script vanished along with him and his vehicle. Whew, the same folks who brought us today's main topic. I've definitely cooled on Witness since season two, but this newest season has me totally hooked. Secret shadow spy intrigue plus old Hollywood gossip. So far, so great with Witness Season 5, Fade to Black. At the number three spot, we have The Dream Season 3. Here's a reminder from the show page. Past seasons of this award-winning investigative podcast looked at pyramid schemes and the world of wellness. This season, we're getting to know the gurus and life coaches who claim they know the secret of living our best lives. Is it all in our mindset or our privilege? Or are we all under a spell? Yes, yes, I know. Not all of you were into this season like I was, and many of you quit after episode two. I totally get it. This season was a little uneven. However, you have to listen to episode nine, titled Coaching the Uncoachable. No spoilers here, but just trust me, it's totally bananas. A standalone episode, you've got to hear this one for yourself. Again, that's The Dream Season 3, Episode 9. At the number two spot, we have Ghost Story. Here's a summary from the show page. Host Tristan Redman is a seasoned journalist who doesn't believe in ghosts, but weird things happened in the bedroom he lived in as a teenager. When he discovers years later that subsequent occupants of the same house have been visited by the ghost of a faceless woman, he is curious because it just so happens that Tristan's childhood home is right next door to the house where his wife's great-grandmother, Naomi Dancy, was murdered in 1937, killed by two gunshots to the face. Could there be a connection between the ghost and the murder? Tristan decides to investigate and soon finds himself going where no son-in-law should go, deep into his wife's family history, asking questions no one wants answered. 
Uh, again with this show, I keep going back and forth on who I think the killer is. But by the end of episode five, I'm pretty sure I've made up my mind. Maybe. I don't know. But I do know for certain I love me some ghost story. And at the number one spot, we have Search Engine and PJ Votes two-part series titled Why Did I Take Speed for 20 Years? Here's the gist. Host PJ was one of the millions of millennials given prescription stimulants to treat ADHD, and he decides to quit. And afterwards wonders, how did these drugs become so popular so fast? In the first part, we learn the story of the amphetamine's birth, life, death, and rebirth in America. Then in part two, PJ approaches the question from a different angle. We meet a doctor who spent two decades convinced that her brain does not work correctly and who struggled to find someone who believed her. Like Search Engine's two-part series on fentanyl, this is required listening. We all have a personal connection to this story, whether ourselves or someone we know. I promise you, though, you're going to be appalled how much you don't know about this topic. An exceptional podcast like this one will allow you to connect with an individual human experience and give you a deeper understanding. I appreciate the hard work, research, and respect that went into this story, and I have so much gratitude to PJ and his guest Bianca for being open with their experience. An absolute standout from Search Engine. Give it a listen and share it with your friends. Find out next week who will be in the number one spot and let me know what trending shows are in your top five. I'll meet you back here next week to dust off another superb true crime show from the archive for your next feeding fix. That's all for today's true crime feed. Don't forget to sign up for my weekly newsletter where I post links to my top three, sometimes five, favorite shows of the week and bring you fabulous visual aids for every episode. Be sure to follow the show on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook to join the conversation. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a review and tell your fellow partners in crime to tune in to True Crime Feed. Thank you so, so much for riding along and allowing me to be your audio accomplice. Join me next week for another feeding.